And what organizations have to realize, particularly when it comes to re-exporting control technology, is that you have to go through the process of evaluating what the ECCN number is, that particular item, and whether or not the item could be exported in the first place to the jurisdiction you intend to re-export it to. Global companies face unprecedented risks and challenges in today's economy. To mitigate these legal and economic risks, companies are rapidly embracing and elevating the importance of robust ethics and compliance programs to promote positive corporate citizenship. On Corruption, Crime and Compliance, you'll hear from industry leaders and insiders about how to create effective ethics and compliance programs that will mitigate risks and maximize financial performance. Here's your host, Michael Volkov. Well, welcome, everybody. Glad you could join us. And I'm really happy to have another member of the Volkov Law Firm, Alexander Katoya, who is our regulatory compliance manager. Welcome, Alex. Always a pleasure to have you here and for everybody to take a moment to learn from you. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's always a pleasure to be on your podcast. Well, just to give folks, and a lot of our clients obviously have worked with Alex. Alex, just a little bit of background. He's obviously the regulatory compliance manager, but he has over 17 years of experience in the legal and compliance profession. And he has a long history of helping in the legal industry. I've always told him that he should go to law school, but he seems to be able to perform at a level higher than a lawyer without going to law school. So he joined us actually in 2021, and he was for four years with suborbital space tourism company based in New Mexico, which is where he is. And I'm sure everybody could figure out who who that is. But Alex has a lot of experience in trade compliance matters since he handled a lot of that at his prior company. And one other thing that I think everybody, which is really interesting, is Alex is now studying to qualify as a solicitor for the Law Society of England and Wales via the SQE route for experienced uh, legal professionals. What is the SQE route, first off? Yeah, so the SQE is, yes, it's a new exam that was promulgated recently by the Law Society of England England and Wales. And the primary intention behind it was to liberalize and democratize the profession to include underrepresented minorities and other people who might not have access to a typical kind of training contract required for a solicitor prior to being admitted to the role. And so now everyone, whether you're in England or you're international, has to take the same test and gain two years of what they call qualifying work experience before you're admitted to the role of solicitors. Now, the good thing about the SQE route uh, for experienced legal professionals is that even for non-attorneys, those work as paralegals or regulatory compliance managers, that qualifies towards your qualifying work experience. So it kind of streamlines the process nice. a bit yeah. for people to gain access yeah. to the legal profession in ways they would not have otherwise. Wow, that's terrific. Well, congrats on that, Alex. We'll be opening up a uh, London field office that's right, for you at some point down the road. But if anybody's ever interested to talk to Alex about that, definitely reach out. So, Alex, I thought today we'd catch up on export controls, trade sanctions, and some of the hot-button issues that are going on. And it seems to me we've obviously had a big year with the Russia sanctions program and everything like that. 
But there are a lot of other interesting issues going on on top of that. And the first, which I know you spend a lot of time on and you work with a lot of clients in export control and the BIS and the Department of Commerce and the licensing or regime there. But I wanted to talk to you first or just help us out with the China semiconductor sort of controls and the new program that just came out and was announced. And it seems to me like it's generating a lot of press, but can you sort of give our listeners, you know, a summary of that and some of the impressions and issues you're seeing sort of crop up in this area? You know, we're talking primarily about restrictions that are intended to curb China's ability to purchase and manufacture what we would call high-end computing commodities that are used in military applications. The restrictions that were announced by BAS in early October really focus on obstructing China's ability to obtain advanced computing chips, which in turn could be used to manufacture the next generation of so-called supercomputers. And by supercomputers, we mean computers with a very high level of operational performance. So the government fears that these computers could be used by China to upgrade their military capabilities and contribute to the proliferation of WMDs. The government also fears, quite rightly, that supercomputing technology will dramatically improve the speed and accuracy of military decision-making and enhance China's ability to plan and execute logistics, and in some cases, even automate military systems altogether. So the result of this sort of intense focus on national security concerns, BIS promulgated two rules on October 7th that imposed significant export controls on semiconductor chips, transactions for supercomputer end uses, in transactions involving certain organizations contained on the entity list. The new rules impose some controls related to the export of semiconductor manufacturing technology and certain transactions for integrated circuitry or IC technology. Integrated circuitry, of course, is the foundation on which all modern electronic devices are built. So when we talk about integrated circuitry, we're talking about the building blocks, really, of electronics, everything from microcontrollers to microprocessors, that enhance the overall performance of the end product. The fear is that the development of advanced IC technology by China will ultimately diminish U.S. military superiority and give China the key tactical advantage. So with respect to IC technology in particular, the new rules make it clear that ICs meeting specified technological criteria are subject to a license requirement when destined for fabrication facilities in China and that a presumption of denial would apply in those instances. And let me drill down on one issue. Does that mean that we have also a number of organizations designated in China that are connected to the military? In other words, have they expanded the list of sort of what are called the denied parties list? Along with these sort of restrictions, are there also sort of restrictions that go along with not engaging in export relations with uh, certain military or organizations connected to the Chinese military. Is that That's fair to say or no? It is fair to say because these, so BIS expanded the list of entities that are on the entity list and that are connected to China's civil military fusion initiative, which is really blending civilian technology with its military capabilities in a way that would enhance those capabilities over the long term. So we have additional entities that are added to that list, which makes screening of particular end users really important. Interesting. And in general, just an observation that I've seen, you know, in the Russia sanctions and export controls, one of the mitigation strategies or one of the issues that gets raised is 
preventing military end use of certain products. And it seems like we're getting into that again now with China. We're already into it in terms of restrictions in Russia. That always, to me, raises hard compliance issues because then we have to see where our products are going. And then we also have to document and protect ourselves in making sure that it's not going to a prohibitive end user. I see more and more emphasis on that in the compliance world. Is that fair to say? In other words, we, we're now documenting more and more of who are our end users and getting certifications from them. I think it makes end user screening and obtaining compliance certifications paramount. You know, in the past, I think it may have been a luxury to obtain these end user statements and to go through the rigmarole of just checking the box when it comes to export compliance. But in an age of, as you know, increased enforcement activity, it really makes those preventative measures key. Also, there's been a lot of controversy about these rules. I was noticing other law firms are saying, and we talked about this before we started this, about there needs to be guidance on this and that. As an expert in this area, when you look at the regs and what's out there, what's been put out there, what's your sense of it? And did BIS leave a lot of gaps here? Or what was your sense of what the rules that came out looked like? Yeah, you know, as you and I discussed before joining the podcast, I think a lot of it has to do with the fundamental disagreement in terms of policy. I think a lot of people don't like the fact that we're imposing more stringent export controls on certain technology to China because we've become accustomed to, in many ways, almost kind of a liberalized free trade arrangement with China where we're exporting very sophisticated technologies to be integrated with other technologies in the PRC. So I think a lot of the pushback, if you will, and insistence that BIS has really promulgated a set of new regulations that won't work has to do with a fundamental disagreement in terms of policy rather than implementation. You make a good point, though, Alex, about the fact that what really may be going on here is sort of, sort of political and that people are just upset about not having the free trade type of arrangements that we've had with China. And this is, I mean, a huge industry we're talking about and a huge part of our, our trade industry, I would think, with China. Massive. And I think, you know, it's just the resistance to the customary way of doing things. Right. You know, let's stay on top of that. And maybe we can have you back later on as we get sort of more experience with some of these issues and as time goes on. But it seems to me like this should be an important focus for all companies that are dealing with China and may fall under the coverage of these new regulations. You know, and I hate to open up a gigantic, massive subject, but, you know, look, Russia has been on everyone's mind in terms of sanctions compliance. But I also like to remind people that there's a whole regime related to export controls as well. But what's your sense of sort of where we are with the Russia sanctions, the Russia export controls, and also applies to Belarus? And we've had clients who had business in Belarus that had to navigate this as well. So what's your sense of where we are with regard to the current regime and where we're going? So as you know, Mike, the firm really collectively has kept a keen eye on developments involving Russia from not only a sanctions perspective, but also an export control one as well, because as you mentioned, we have a number of clients who seek advice in that space. So beginning really in the aftermath of Russia's Ukraine invasion, we saw coordinated efforts at the very highest levels of the government that were designed to prevent Russia from acquiring assets and commodities that could be used for military purposes. So in what I call the first round of Russia export controls, we saw BIS impose license requirements with respect to the export of certain commodities 
that were deemed integral to sustaining Russia's Ukraine misadventure. And those items were contained in categories three through nine of what they call the commerce control list. In the second round of export controls, BIS expanded those license requirements to encompass all items on the CCL by including items contained in categories zero and two to the extent that the intended end user is located in Russia or the commodity in question will even transit Russia. Now, more recently, what we've seen is that BIS has adopted changes that require licenses for even items designated as EAR-99. So the most recent action by BIS, of course, created a new supplement number six to part 746 of the EAR that contains a list of approximately 125 items, including chemicals, biologics, fentanyl, and items that would be deemed precursors to production of fentanyl that require BIS authorization to export. And of course, now the export of VAR 99 items to military end users and in support of military end uses also requires a BIS license. Uh, that being said, I think as a firm, our general guidance to clients has been to err on the side of caution when you're dealing with exports, right. the exports or transfers that might implicate the Russian Federation in any way. You know, what's interesting you mentioning there is expanding this to ER 99 is, I mean, look, a lot of clients have said, oh, well, this is ER 99, so I don't have to worry about this. And what you're saying is when it comes to Russia, we do have to worry about ER 99 and making sure that we're in compliance. And I think that's been a misnomer for several years now. People equate EAR 99 with no license required. When that's not necessarily the case, you have to go and examine the EAR's general prohibitions to make sure it's not being diverted for military end use or military end user. And now right. getting more into the granular level, BIS has added this discrete list of items to the EAR that says even if they're classified as EAR 99, you can't export them to Russia unless you have authorization. So I think much more vigilance is required than was previously thought. Yeah, that's a really an important reminder. I'm glad you, you mentioned the year 99. I mean, look, one issue that I, we don't have the time to actually go into it in, in any great detail, and we read about the sort of price cap sanctions controls that are being implemented across, well, with the coordination of our allies and partners. And we had a guidance document that came out but there's been, a, from what I hear, pushback on the guidance document. But I think we're going to see, depending upon how the, the war progresses, I would not be surprised if we see in the next year, even you know, maybe by the end of the first quarter, some kind of price cap regulation over oil and Russian oil. But you know, that's a big, big issue. And believe me, when I saw the guidance and looked through the compliance requirements, it's going to be a nightmare for various people who are involved in the energy industry. That's the way I look at it. No, Any sense from your be. part, you know, in terms of where you see that? Do you think the first quarter of next year or maybe second quarter? What do you think? I think optimistically, I think people are aiming for the first quarter of next year, but we may see some developments in that space more towards the second and third quarters. I think the preliminary guidance document so, that you referenced does a good job of kind of outlining the requirements for compliance. But I think it's going to have to get a little bit more granular for it to be of any practical utility for organizations involved in the energy sector. So we'll see some activity, I think, through 2023 on that issue. Yeah. Let's go back to Commerce, BIS, the Bureau of Industry and Security. And I want to talk to a little bit about enforcement and some of the issues we just posted on our blog, an article on ramping up of export control enforcement. Now, I mentioned to you, I know uh, Matt Axelrod, who is now the head of enforcement, 
and he was a former assistant U.S. attorney in the United States Attorney's Office for D.C., where I worked. Terrific guy, but I was just saying that, and very professional, and that when you put a prosecutor in that space, what they know to do is to bring cases. You know, he came out with a new enforcement policy several months ago, which we've written about on our blog as well. I see the environment really changing here. Matt is getting ready to sort of unload on some bigger cases as we go along. What, what's your sense? Yeah, no, Mike, I totally agree with you. And I think that the guidance that they released, you know, I think it was in the summer of 2022, earlier this year, about changing some of the way administrative violations will be viewed really was instructive because one of the fundamental premises underlying that change was using non-monetary resolutions for less serious violations, but also imposing more stringent financial penalties on those who engage in culpable acts. So I think we're going to see much more aggressive and I think more consistent enforcement of EIR by BIS. In the article we posted just recently, Alex, we focused on this It's called Webb's Electronics Trading Company. And what was interesting to me about this case is here you have a United Arab Emirates company that was prosecuted for violating U.S. export controls by shipping or trying to ship $50,000 worth of U.S. origin telecommunications items to Syria and Iran. And then the owner also went down the wrong path there and lied to the BIS agent when interviewed. Lying to federal law enforcement is never a great idea. Yeah, not a good thing to do. Eddie denied exporting products to Syria, and they were able to prove it, and he couldn't provide documentation. Actually, if you read the facts of the case, it's kind of instructive on what not to do. But what was interesting to me is the jurisdiction here is because it's a U.S. origin telecommunications item. The company isn't based in the United States, but the regulatory regime sort of flows with the U.S. origin items and gives BIS jurisdiction anywhere in the world with regard to the movement of that telecommunications equipment to prohibited parties in Syria and, you know, Iran. That, to me, was kind of interesting, and it's a pretty aggressive charging letter. It's exacerbated by his denials and the fact that they were able to pull together the documentation, which showed that he was lying. What do you think about that, though? U.S. origin product, to me, is really interesting to see how they can extend their jurisdiction. It really is. You know, it reminds me, in a way, of the SCPA with the extraterritorial reach of the SCPA. In a way, the EAR is similar in the sense that, you know, items that are produced here in the United States and exported are always going to be controlled by the EAR and designated on the CCL. So just because the item leaves U.S. jurisdiction doesn't mean that the AIR no longer controls it. And what organizations have to realize, particularly when it comes to re-exporting control technology, is that you have to go through the process of evaluating what the ECCN number is, that particular item, and whether or not the item could be exported in the first place to the jurisdiction you intend to re-export it to. Right. And this was an ECCN 5A002 dot little a for, and it was controlled for anti-terrorism and national security and required a license. Now, the thing that's interesting to me also, and I've seen in a lot of sanctions and export control cases, is when you're dealing with businesses in Dubai and in the UAE, they're so high risk because 
of their proximity to Iran and Syria. And I always feel like it's almost a red flag by definition if you're dealing with somebody in that area because of the ease with which they can divert products to Iran or to, let's say, Syria, which are prohibited countries. Yeah, the risk is significant. And I think that makes the case for end user statements all the more important in those circumstances, especially when you're doing business generally in the Middle East. You want those end user statements to confirm that the product is being used by the intended recipient and not being diverted to, as you call them, sanctioned jurisdictions. Right. There was another enforcement action involving Seagate technology. And now a lot of our clients came back with compliance issues relating to their purchases or their interactions with Wowie. And Wowie has certainly, you know, has a long history here, but we have been ratcheting up the export controls with regard to Wowie. And here, Seagate Technology apparently is making the argument that their sale of hard disk drives to Wowie was not subject to the EAR, whereas BIS is arguing, oh, yes, it was. And they're in the middle of trying to resolve that. But it certainly raises to me the issue of Wowie. We had people who, if you had government contracts, you had to certify that you had no Wowie products in your operations. And that created various compliance issues. And I noticed when you talked about China and these new regulations that have come out with regard to semiconductors and chips and whatnot, that did not alter in any way the current status of Wowie. Am I, am I right in that? You're correct, right? The current status of Huawei remains very stringent when it comes to dealing with them. Right. Anyways, that's just a reminder to make sure to the extent you are in the telecommunications industry, or if you do have government contracts, you're not allowed to have Huawei products on your premises. So we had a client who had to go around and check their cameras, which were Huawei cameras, to make sure that they were replaced with a non-Huawei brand. That just tells you how amazing these things can go. They really can. And I think trade enforcement is going to be an increasingly important tool in the arsenal, in the foreign policy in the arsenal of the United States, as we get into discussions about how to shore up our national security posture and prevent some of our, our nemesis from getting access to critical technology. So trade compliance is going to be, it used to be a luxury. It's no longer a luxury. It really is a necessity. Well said, Alex. Couldn't have said it any better than myself. Alex, thanks so much. This has been a great discussion. Thanks for the update on everything. If any listener wants to reach you to speak to you, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Sure. The best way to get in contact with me is by email. That's at alexalex.katoya, C-O-T-O-I-A, at volkofflaw.com. And you can access our website and get my email there as well. Okay. Sounds great. So Alex, thank you again. We really appreciate your time. And look forward to having you come back and sort of bring us back up to speed as to what's the latest in the uh, trade compliance area. Thanks again. Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is by subscribing on your favorite listening platform. To learn more and connect with Michael Volkov, go to volkovlaw.com.